Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello, everyone. I'm Vahag Nikolian. I'm a abdominal wall reconstruction and hernia surgeon here at Oregon Health and Science University, OHSU, in Portland, Oregon. And I'm excited for our team to start presenting and uh, discussing topics related to the abdominal wall. Uh, today, we're going to start with one of my uh, favorite team members and abdominal wall enthusiasts, Imad Iqbal. Imad, if you could quickly introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, my name is Imad Iqbal. I'm a general surgery resident here at Columbia University, taking a year to do some uh, surgical education and abdominal wall research. Wonderful. Uh, we have two other team members who won't be featured today, but will be contributing over the course of our time with you. That includes my senior partner, Sean Orenstein, who's an associate professor of surgery here at OHSU, also focused on abdominal wall reconstruction and hernia, as well as one of our OHSU residents, uh, Sharos Rahman, who is a current third year and progressing through training and having a good time on our service. So today we thought rather than talking about how to repair hernias, which will be the focus of our segments for the most part, we're going to start with our first lecture talking about how to prevent hernias, incisional hernias. They happen to everyone. Every surgeon makes incisions, big and small. And so learning how to avoid or reduce the risk of patients developing incisional hernias is critical. So we'll start by reviewing the data about various techniques, and things to consider when performing these operations. So ventral incisional hernia, quite prevalent. Imad, what are some general thoughts about ventral incisional hernia? Yeah, so a study by Fink et al. in 2014 demonstrated that up to about 20% of laparotomies have a hernia at one-year follow-up. It's a higher prevalence than previously was appreciated. And clearly, these ventral hernias are associated with significant morbidity and increased uh, healthcare costs. Gotcha. Yep, exactly. And so, I think there it's much more common than many people recognize. When we look for hernias, we find hernias. When we don't necessarily look for hernias, we don't find them. And that will be something we'll talk about shortly here. So, why do they occur? They occur for a variety of reasons. There's a general underappreciation of abdominal wall closure techniques, but I think we're getting better about understanding some of the technical elements to this critical step of every operation, closure. Um, I think we're understanding more and more about the abdominal wall because of the innovative approaches to reconstruction that have been introduced over the last decade. Imad, what are some other reasons why hernias occur? Yeah, so outside of just the the abdominal wall anatomy, there are patient factors that some modifiable, some not, and then technical factors that we'll discuss together as well. Great. So whenever we think about the idea of improving our approach to care, there's various things that we can do in multiple settings. So for every operation, we think about preoperative planning. We think about intraoperative decision-making, and we should also consider postoperative surveillance to know exactly 
what's happening with the interventions. So let's start with some preoperative planning. Imad, are there any ways that we can actually predict if a patient's going to develop an incisional hernia? Yeah, a study in 28, uh, 2019 by Basta et al. discussed a prediction of incisional hernia, um, and they uh, basically broke up into surgery-specific and patient-specific factors. So repeat laparotomy, uh, emergency surgery, uh, vascular surgery all increase the risk of hernia. Then there's patient demographic factors, so smoking, um, increased age, and these are all associated with increasing incisional hernia. Incisional hernia. Exactly. And so that study that you cite that we'll include in our show links, it actually resulted in a tool that can be used preoperatively to give you and your patient a better sense of what their hernia risk is after their operation. It also lets you see what happens if you're able to modify some of those risk factors, say weight or smoking status or diabetes uh, control and optimization and see what will happen to the hernia rates should you improve their preoperative status. In the pre-op setting, beyond just knowing what the risks are, I think it's important to consider what we do to patients. So what are some questions you think about when planning an operation? All right. So specifically for each operation, we want to first figure out what's the focus of this operation? What is its goal? Exactly. So you want to know why you're there. Are you removing a cancer? Are you removing a segment of bowel that may have ischemia? And you don't want to change focus, but you want to try and optimize what you do for that operation. So what are some ways that you think about, um, you know, performing an operation? What's one of the first things you think about? All right. So we think about approach. Um, and when we're talking about laparotomies, what's the best approach? What's the best incision for exposure? And what's the best incision for the patient themselves? Exactly. And so oftentimes, especially if you take care of older patients, you'll find patients coming in with some very elaborate uh, incisions that we don't make too often anymore. You know, large thoracoabdominal incisions, large transverse incisions or uh, bilateral subcostal incisions. Though they still happen, I think they're happening less often. And the reason is is because people are recognizing the consequences of some of these incisions. What you gain with exposure, you may actually lose a lot with long-term patient outcomes and quality of life. And so if there's an option that will give you adequate exposure, but maybe leave the patient with a less significant consequential hernia or abdominal wall defect, it should be considered. Um, what are some other things you think about whenever planning an operation? Right. So then we get into our exam and evaluating the, uh, the patient's abdominal wall. Does this patient have a hernia or do they have a diastasis? Right. And that those are really important questions. If they have a small umbilical hernia and let's say you make an upper midline incision and extend it to just above that hernia but not necessarily integrating it, and you close without addressing the hernia, 
that lower aspect of your incision is probably going to be at risk for developing a large hernia. If they have a moderate sized hernia that's integrated into your incision, you should probably advise your patient, hey, we closed your abdominal wall. We didn't necessarily do a formal hernia repair. You're going to be at a higher risk for hernia. Same with diastasis. Clearly attenuated fascia, there's going to be weakness there. There's going to be a higher risk for hernia. What else? Then you start thinking about patient risk factors. And then within those, which are modifiable? Exactly. And we talked about those risk models that exist. And and if you're able to modify them, if you have some time on your hands where it's not an urgent, emergent, or time-sensitive operation, it may be worthwhile to modify and optimize a patient. And then the last thing I always tell people to think about is the fact that your abdominal wall is something that people have to live with for the rest of their lives. You can't transplant it, at least right now. We haven't figured out an effective strategy there. So every operation we do should recognize that there are bridges that when crossed become very difficult to cross back over. So if it's a staged operation or a younger patient who may require future interventions, you want to be careful about what you do to the abdominal wall, both with your incision as well as with your closure. So with that said, why don't we move into more uh, sort of detailed discussions about intraoperative decision making. Let's start with some suture and knot principles. So, Imad, tell me a little about the dogma associated with the type of suture used for fascial closure and some of the data about knot tying strategies and or suturing. Sure. So, when we're thinking about suture, think about its construction, monofilament versus braided. Um, we, we understand that, that monofilament sutures will have less friction, so often have a higher chance of slippage, but and braided sutures ultimately have a higher rate of SSIs. Um, there are also different types of knots available, um, though often the, the dogma is that use uh, square knots and tie them, you know, to, to keep the uh, keep slippage uh, excuse me slippage from happening. There is the half-blood knot that ultimately helps. Um, it's a self-locking knot that does not slip. Yeah, and so, you know, physics of the knot uh, are something to consider. I think most people are throwing square knots, but if you really want to be uh, precise or technical, self-locking knots are probably the best if you're worried about slippage. All right, Let's move on from there to the actual process of throwing a stitch and closing fascia. So what's the dogma tell us? What, what do most surgeons tell us to do when we're closing fascia? So traditional dogma has been to take large bites, large being one centimeter bites with one centimeter advances. And that was used in corporate tissue and thought to have strengthened the repair. Great. What's the problem with a large bite? Yeah, so large bites ultimately, because they incorporate a large amount of tissue, are basically incorporating fat and muscle that doesn't need to be incorporated in a fascial closure. Mm-hmm. That fat and muscle gets uh, becomes ischemic because of the knot and ultimately can necrose. There's also an unequal distribution of forces when you have a large bite. Exactly. And so 
To counteract that, many people have proposed and advocated for smaller bites, short bites, which are half centimeter travel and half centimeter from the edge of the fascia. At the end of your closure, if you were to look at how much suture you used relative to the fascial length of closure, your goal is usually four to one. And by doing this, you're integrating less subcutaneous tissue, less muscle, and focusing on that fascial closure, which results in avoidance of tissue necrosis and optimizes the distribution of forces. What was the trial that was done comparing small bite versus large bite for the closure of the abdominal wall? Right, so you're referring to the STITCH trial, which is a double-blinded, multi-center, randomized controlled trial published in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, really randomizing patients between short bites, five millimeter bites and five millimeter advance, and long bite or long uh, large large bites, one centimeter advance and one centimeter uh, of tissue. Uh, and small bites were associated with less incisional hernias, uh, specifically thirteen versus twenty one percent. Other things that's important to recognize about the STITCH trial is that there were no difference in complications, and they were associated, though the shorter travel, shorter stitch was associated with longer operative times, it was only four minutes longer than the long stitch. So if you think about it, you can have a significant reduction in hernia rates with just four extra minutes spent in the operating room. And I think that's something to consider because the consequences of a hernia are much more than four minutes for not only the patient, but for you, the surgeon, if you have to perform a ventral hernia repair down the road. There are some limitations to the study. Clearly, it was a a group of patients that didn't have any underlying hernias. They had lower BMIs. It was Scandinavian studies, so the BMIs were uh, in the 25 range. But I think it does hold true with the, in terms of principles of closure. There's also this concept that's definitely been around for a while, and it has I think it's reemerged as a concept people are becoming more enthusiastic about. And that's prophylactic mesh augmentation. And so prophylactic mesh augmentation is the concept of performing a laparotomy in someone who doesn't have a hernia. And at the time of closure, reinforcing the closure with mesh, be it permanent mesh, absorbable mesh, some sort of mesh material to augment your closure and fortify the wall. And so there's a variety of abdominal wall planes and places that you can place the mesh. So let's start from deep to superficial. What are some deep layers where you can place mesh? Right. You could put the mesh in a preperitoneal or intraperitoneal plane. Mm-hmm. And what is the what would you say are the benefits of a preperitoneal or intraperitoneal mesh? Right. By being in that deep layer, uh, that mesh placement resists the valsalva. It distributes tension better and ultimately lowers the risk of any cutaneous complications such as wound infection or seromas. Yeah, and that's because the mesh has multiple layers of abdominal wall between it and the skin and soft tissue up to, uh, more superficially. Unfortunately, placing intraperitoneal mesh 
or preperitoneal mesh is not necessarily easy. It's actually technically challenging because you have to circumferentially secure the mesh, especially if it's intraperitoneal. If you're preperitoneal, you're dealing with a scenario where you have to do a preperitoneal dissection, which again, in many patients with ultra-thin peritoneum can be challenging. Visceral risk is also of consequence. So if you're not developing a preperitoneal pocket and focusing on intraperitoneal mesh, you may have interactions between the mesh and the viscera that can be consequential. So uh, these are options, though many surgeons are not too enthusiastic about these particular options. So let's move a little more superficially, maybe one layer up. What's another layer where you can place mesh? Yeah, so mesh can also be placed into the retrorectus space. Right, so retrorectus. And so you would make a dissection plane uh, by opening up your posterior rectus fascia and develop a space behind both of the rectus muscles and close the posterior fascia and then in that pocket place mesh and then close your anterior fascia. That's called sublay mesh. So in this type of an approach, what are some of the benefits? So again, uh, this, this mesh placement resists Valsalva, has better tension distribution, um, and also avoids any of the cutaneous uh, risks that the intraperitoneal preperitoneal mesh had, but also avoids visceral risk by not being close to the abdominal cavity. Yeah, so just to clarify... It, the cutaneous risk would not necessarily be associated with the preperitoneal or intraperitoneal, but other types of mesh that we'll talk about just next. But the visceral risk, yeah. So you're play, excluding the mesh from the visceral cavity, so you're going to have less mesh, mesh to intestine interaction. Unfortunately, this retrorectus plane and development of it can be technically challenging for those that don't necessarily do it regularly. It is associated with increased operative time. And most importantly, I think that it violates a very important abdominal wall plane that is utilized not necessarily in a prophylactic setting, but in the reconstruction and actual repair setting. So be cautious when integrating this kind of a strategy, a retromuscular prophylactic mesh strategy in practice because it's a critical layer of the abdominal wall. And once it's violated, uh, reconstruction down the road or future operations become much more difficult. So then moving one more layer superficially, what's next? What, what's another commonly utilized plane or position for mesh in the setting of prophylaxis? Right. The last would be an onlay repair, uh, placing the mesh anterior to the anterior rectus sheath and between the uh, anterior rectus sheath and the subcutaneous fat. Right. And so what are some benefits here? Right. So it's typically simpler. It's faster to perform. And again, by being anterior to the rectus sheath, there's no uh, risk to the um, viscera. Right. And most people are pretty familiar with raising a subcutaneous flap. Usually you want to raise between like two to five, four centimeters of subcutaneous flaps on either side of your midline and then place a mesh after fascial closure and then circumferentially secure the mesh. Unfortunately, the process of placing this mesh in the subcutaneous space um, means that you're putting it in a relatively avascular plane. 
and so if there are infections, it's difficult for systemic antibiotics to necessarily penetrate in that area. It's also relatively superficial, so you may have a higher burden of issues if there was like a superficial infection that could penetrate down to the level of the mesh. And because you've developed flaps and you have a foreign body sitting in that space, you do have a higher risk of developing a seroma. So prophylactic mesh augmentation has been studied. Uh, one of the uh, very famous studies done in 2016 was called the PREMAT trial. And so what was the PREMAT trial, Iman? Yeah, so the PREMAT trial was a multi-center, a multi-center randomized control trial that assessed the role of retromuscular macropolars polypropylene mesh in patients undergoing AAA repair. Great. And, and they followed patients for two years. And what did they find? So there was no difference in morbidity or mortality between these two groups. They found a significant reduction of incisional hernias within the mesh, uh, with mesh, uh, within that two-year follow-up. So no mesh had a 28% rate of incisional hernias, whereas the mesh group actually had 0%, had no incisional hernias. Amazing. When do we ever see 0%? But that's pretty cool. So this was this made people very enthusiastic. Again, it was in patients that were undergoing abdominal aortic aneurysm repair, a group of patients that are very high risk for developing hernias because of their... Uh, oftentimes there's some issues with their collagen or their MMPs. But two-year follow-up, retromuscular mesh associated with zero rates of hernia in this study versus 28% when mesh was not utilized. And so people were pretty excited. Unfortunately, I caution people again, this is really encouraging findings, but it does violate that critical retromuscular plane that may be needed for future reconstruction. So another study that came out was the PRIMA trial. So what was the PRIMA trial? Again, this was a multi-center randomized control trial that assessed the role of onlay retromuscular macroporous polypropylene mesh in patients undergoing midline laparotomy, and it compared onlay retrorectus and primary closure. Great. So now this was a really nice study because it had the three groups. It had primary closure, the standard way that we always close. It had retromuscular or retrorectus, which was very similar to the pre-MAT trial. And it had that third group, onlay. And again, when you're thinking about mesh position in general, like if I was to tell you, if you didn't have the data and you didn't know what the results were, what would you assume was going to be the case in terms of which one would be the most effective approach for hernia reduction? Right. My my guess, if I was to make make a guess about this, would say that the retrorectus approach would have the least uh, rate of incisional hernias and that primary would have the most. Okay. And we were all surprised to see the results. And what we found was that incisional hernia rates were 31% for primary closure. Um, that doesn't surprise people that take care of patients with hernias. But what we found with the interventions, onlay versus retrorectus, was that they both had significant reductions in incisional hernia rate. 13% for onlay, 
and 18% for retrorectus in terms of the numbers of patients that developed subsequent hernias. So a significant reduction from 31% for the primary closure with no significant difference between on-layer retrorectus. So that was surprising and encouraging. Um, seroma rates were predictably higher in the on-lay group, 18% compared to 7% for retrorectus and 5% for primary closure. But again, incisional hernia rates were no different. So they, I, I would deem these to be relatively inconsequential seromas. So moving on from the operating room, let's talk about post-op surveillance. Post-op surveillance is something that we need to do better. Uh, the truth is that every study you look at, if hernia is a primary endpoint, you find incisional hernia rates that are between 20 and 30%. If you look at hernia as a secondary endpoint or as something that wasn't necessarily focused upon, the rates drop drastically. It's not that the hernia rates actually dropped. It's that they were less often detected. So we have to figure out ways to be more effective with the way that we surveil patients for hernias, asking specific questions, doing more focused physical exams, and working with other folks in the hospital, for instance, radiologists, to make sure that they interpret the abdominal wall correctly. So today was a great session. I think we accomplished a lot. So Imad, what would be sort of some of the take-home points from today's conversation? Yeah, so just like we did with our conversation, let's break it down to three different groups. Preoperative planning basically can help stratify, stratify patient hernia risk, uh, thinking about the modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors there. Intraoperative decisions are related to suture materials, stitching technique, and then mesh augmentation, though well described, is currently underutilized. And then finally, post-operative surveillance can better quantify incisional hernia occurrences. And you really don't see what you don't look for. So that's definitely what we're experiencing here. Great. So with that said, it's been an absolute honor to start our hernia and abdominal wall reconstruction segments for Behind the Knife. We'll be joining on a quarterly basis and talking about other uh, sort of high-yield topics. We hope you enjoy this and we hope you continue to Dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.